please lock the cage doors at this time. Today, we get to study stepping into the cage. Volume four, the games have just begun. I knew that I had to find a, a vehicle that would allow me to do that where there was some mechanism of truth or reality in that the character was losing his mind. So his behavior, his body language, his facial expressions were also the result of a man who was having a nervous breakdown. So therefore I could become very stylistic. Let's explore the boundaries of where you can go with acting. Adventure films were the universal language, and I thought that if I would do that, it would give me tenure. Hey, buddy, ever heard of a lie? Hey, have you ever been dragged to the sidewalk and beat till you pissed blood? It was a movie that was shot very quickly, three or four weeks, and I'm thankful for that because I was exploring a very dark corner of my imagination doing that movie, and I was trying to get a little method with the performance. Just put it in the right file, according to alphabetical order. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, do you X, Y, Z? Huh? That's all you have to do! Bravo! What, what were we talking about? Um, well, um, I was thinking about doing a watch party for planes, trains, and automobiles. Oh, yeah. Maybe the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Yes, dude. Let everybody know that that's what we're doing this night, you know? We did that episode last year, because you were talking about it being a Thanksgiving movie, and I was like, I don't see it. You go, next Thanksgiving, you need to sit mm -hmm. down, you need to watch this movie. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll, yeah. I'll do it. So it's cool to, to look back now and say, we, oh, last year we were doing the same thing. For maybe just furthering the, the the live stream thing it was just some good feedback and doing the calendar it made me realize that like the bracket is the king whatever else i try to do it's going to come in second place to the bracket you know like the bracket um, is the heartbeat of the page and we wouldn't be here if the page didn't exist so that's our lifeblood and just uh just let everybody know i am planning a bracket in january but i'm just taking the holidays off guys trying not to do all that you know on an everyday basis i got my music going on i put that on the back burner for about a month to do the october thing i want to jump back into that you know what if people are yearning i think it'd be great to wait a little bit i could help i could you Absolutely. know i won't ever i won't ever claim a bracket but i could be like hey here's all the legwork actually i think it's a good idea to wait because like i said people would be so excited when they see it coming around the corner you know in a couple of months <laughs> Uh, we usually get Dutch in as well. Big Dutch fan. Dutch. Oh, I love Dutch. Those ones that you just thought that Ed O'Neill was just going to blow up after that. People didn't want to translate him to, to Hollywood, I guess. I think he's just a better TV actor, maybe. And uh, yeah. it, it got to, like, stupid rock star status there at the end. You know, but I, I wonder how time will remember Ed O'Neill. Will he be remembered as Al Bundy? Or will, will he be remembered as the grandfather from Modern Family. There's this grim movie game that I like to play, but it's hard to explain to people. It's, and I call it the obituary game. 
And what it is is basically, if you were to pick out a movie star and to say, like, what, what, what would the headline read when this actor died? Whatever actor. Star of blank and blank. I'll give you one. I'll give you one. You know. When Clinics was right around the corner, bro. What, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Clint, but uh, he's, he's yeah, almost. I mean, he's, I think he's over 90 now. What would be his first oh, title? God. Um, I would say The Dirty Harry and Unforgiven. What, what do you think? I mean, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is one of my favorites of his, but it's definitely not his biggest commercial success. But, I mean, Dirty Harry, you know, to be honest, I've never seen a Dirty Harry movie. How many did he make? Maybe like five. Oh, shit. So, they, oh, my, I didn't know it was that yeah. big of a franchise. And, and one, of them, one of them is actually called The Deadpool. Oh. If you, if you can believe that. And Jim Carrey is actually the villain in The Deadpool. What? This movie exists? A Dirty Harry movie where Jim Carrey is the villain? And I have not seen this? I am off work tomorrow. I'm going to find that fucking movie and I'm going to watch it. All right, man. You ready to do this? Let's roll. Okay, let's do this. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Spitting the Real Shit, the only weekly movie podcast made exclusively by four and about the online Facebook group, The Real Shits. Now, you are catching us on a very special day, because this is our 56th episode ever. And this week, we add another layer to our ongoing double feature series, Stepping Into the Cage. And with our fourth volume, we explore two newer Cage entries, uh, 2021's action sci-fi revenge flick, Prisoners of the Ghostland, co-starring Nick Cassavetes and Bill Mosley, and also another... 2021 entry uh, Nick Sarkowski's love letter to fine dining Pig uh, We also discuss the lure to direct to video projects As well as recap October And give our top three Nick Cage co-stars My name is Charlie Thompson Founder, administrator, and bracket master Of The Real Shit And joining me, as always Is my co-host and fellow administrator The midnight movie maniac himself Ryland Johnson What's going on, man? After watching these two, my favorite quote line out of both of them is, I'm trying to reason with you bitches. We're back. It feels great, dude. How you been? Feeling good? Man, I am feeling great. It was so good to explore uh, October, just kind of the way we did. We had our whole month planned with what we were going to do, and we, you know, we celebrated these slasher icons. I had so much fun dipping into all the the history of those slashers. They've been, it really filled up my, my month. It was already jam-packed with movies. You made a dream come true. I got to do a podcast on Freddie and Michael Myers and, uh, and Jason. And props to you for doing the every night of October, putting a movie out there for everybody to see and, and, and a synopsis. And we even did some fun uh, Facebook Live stuff. So yeah. put the whole month together, you, you kept the whole month together every night, 31 days, man. That's That says a lot about your uh, commitment, man. I appreciate that, man. Now, it was, it was just an experiment that I wanted to do, man. I had so much fun, but there is a point where you kind of, you watch a little bit too much horror. At once, you know, uh, but I'm so glad we have this breather kind of series that we have with Stepping Into the Cage, where we can just kind of break away and just watch a couple of Nick Cage flicks. And yeah, so uh, we're back. Stepping Into the Cage is live and in effect. Volume 4, man. That's kind of the goal for this series, is to eventually watch every single Nick Cage film. The authorities of Nick Cage cinema, and we can literally say that we've seen every single one of them. 
but we're going to pace ourselves. But we got so much, guys, like Moonstruck, uh, Honeymoon in Vegas, leaving Las Vegas. Con Air is still on the table. I said, put the bunny back in the box. Like, there's so much to pull from here, guys. So uh, stay tuned for more entries in this series. But tonight, before we get going, I wanted to talk about the direct-to-video market, which, if you've seen it in the last decade, Nick Cage has made a very comfortable living doing these kinds of films. Nicholas Cage of Honeymoon in Vegas and Moonstruck, Lara Flynn Boyle of The Temp and Wayne's World, and Dennis Hopper of Boiling Point and Blue Velvet. Does this mean that we ain't partners? Red Rock West, from Columbia TriStar Home Video. You know, and, and, and see the actual divide that totally encompasses Nick Cage's career. I, I, mm -hmm. I really want to know more of the history of it. I think you know more than I do. I had the idea of maybe talking about this subject today. So I did a little bit of just research. I mean, obviously, it, it comes on the tail of the video market uh, with the genre films where you could find you know, horror films, you know, in video, small little mom and pop shops. Action films were no exception. Rom-coms had their fair share of direct-to-video stuff. It's just people making work and getting paid. It's a business at the end of the day. Sometimes people don't want to wait for the next Avengers film. And if they have, you know, certain specific stuff or if they have a person that they really, you know, enjoy watching, which has been fascinating in the last decade or so of the direct-to-video market, how it's become kind of a, a place where big names can go and still turn a profit. I'm not sure if you know this, Rylan, but the average return on these direct-to-video marquee films they usually come back with about $50 million. to save a shit ton of money with not marketing these movies because that's a huge part of the budget with these bigger films they just put a bag of money down in front of fucking bruce willis and say hey you're making a sci-fi movie now in space and it's gonna be god awful but here's five million dollars i think a lot of it too is these actors it's their egos man because they're still getting work i think that's the biggest fear to an actor is when they stop getting work if you're still getting work and getting paid five million dollars as bruce willis i don't think your uh, egos is tarnished too bad it's also fascinating to look at the audience of these films. Yeah. There's a multiplex in all cities, most towns, but there's a red box station at every gas station, every Walgreens, and in, in right. every landlocked state, every every non-metropolitan area. Redbox is America's destination for affordable and convenient new release movies and video game rentals. And with over 41,000 kiosks in more locations than Starbucks and McDonald's combined, it certainly ain't hard to find us. And so these movies are getting to these niche, small markets who don't give a fuck about film criticism, <laughs> who just want to watch a movie and just want to see John Travolta on a story, you know? Like, like they're that not committed to the art of it. And it, it just makes a return. And it's like, why not capitalize on that market, you know? It's, it's a total business decision, you know, but the show must go on, you know? Like, you got to make these movies. People are putting up money because they know it's going to make a return. Like the dude says, you know, you got to feed the monkey, you know. <laughs> it's it's how people 
keep on keeping on, you know? I mean, I'm sure Nick Cage is more than grateful for this market. I feel like this is the house that Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal built. You think you can hide the bad movies from Jean-Claude, huh? Ah, you fluffy feel-good movie? Ah, ah. Oh, you cry baby movies, huh? That's what you have. Cry baby. Even is horrible. Ah, action. Ah, movie. Ah, all very deep in your DVD collection. You know, if you're an aging action star, this is where you go to die. I mean, so... But, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme, we looked this up earlier and, you know, we've talked about the story where he gets blacklisted pretty much in Hollywood because he turned down a big yeah. deal after making Time Cop. Then this is when this just every six months to a year was a new Jean-Claude Van Damme movie for about 15 years, man. Like, and he's still doing it. I don't think he's pumping them out and turning them out like he used to. Seagal's, he's, to me, even worse because, God, at least Jean-Claude is kept in shape and can do his kicks and shit still. <laughs> I don't know. I can understand wanting to see uh, John Travolta as a fucking submarine captain or some shit. That seems interesting to me, but man, I don't know. I can't do the Seagulls, man. <laughs> to, to track Jean-Claude, I mean, as a boy in the 90s, Jean-Claude was the shit. I mean, yeah. um, come on, he did roundhouse kicks, all that kind of shit. And yeah, I, I totally watched his films, but I do also remember the decline. And I remember the last movie poster in a theater that I saw was for that movie Double Team. Dennis Rodman. Uh, and an Academy Award nominee, Mickey Rourke. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Dennis Rodman. This spring, they don't play by the rules. Sorry. Double team. Who does your hair? Siegfried or Roy? No hair jokes today, okay? Seeing that and just seeing the poster and being like, that looks like dog shit, yeah. you know, like as a as a child, as a person who enjoys action movies, like looking at that being like, nope, I'm not watching that. That looks stupid. That one's actually kind of fun. Like, <laughs> a little fun. So so after Double Team, you know, he did a movie called Knockoff. Then he did Legionnaire. Then he did the sequel to Universal Soldier. You know, and then it goes on and on. You know, the, after that, it's The Replicant, The Order, Derailed. In Hell, uh, Wake wow. of Death, Second in Command. I mean, th these are the kinds of titles that inhabit these, you know, movie channel, red box type of stuff. It's literally just filler. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say I've seen probably more than half of those you just mentioned. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, for a while there, I just wanted to to see how far I could go because I was such a big fan of his. And then I just went, okay, no more. <laughs> no more. No more, Jean-Claude. No more. Surrender. White flag. It, we, I mean, you remember going to Blockbuster and seeing them on the shelf because you just never heard, you know, there, like I said, there's no marketing for these things. And you remember right. seeing the ones eventually to where they would like play off of the title completely. It, I swear to God, it would confuse the dumb people in the world. Like it would be like oh. Transformers and Transponders and it would look just like the oh. Transformers uh, uh, DVD box and people would rent it. <laughs> That's how shady they're being. I remember there being a movie called District 10. <laughs> and, it, and, and it and it had literally the same kind of poster, oh. you know, and, and, and I could see how somebody could just accidentally grab that That's instead of District 9. District 10. You know, <laughs> just one over. This is the story of the one over. I mean, but besides that, I mean, these are legit actors. These are people that have won awards, that have rubbed elbows with the elite. But it seems like they're kind of using the direct-to-video market kind of like the way that you know, Marlon Brando used Apocalypse Now, you know, like they're just so comfortable. They can move their whole operation, take it over, 
he can make a few bucks and then just you know pack up and leave town again. You know, it's a, it's just a money generator. It's just so fascinating to me. If you play the odds on this thing, nine times out of ten, it's not going to have any kind of artistic value. It's going to be basically like an episode of you know Law and Order or you know one of the, one of those types of shows that your parents watch on CBS, just in movie form. It's just, you know, how people get paid. Because at the end of the day, that's what you are. You're an actor. Being an artist doesn't pay the bills, but being an actor does. As we've reported on this show before, Nick Cage is notoriously in need of money. I want to say he's probably nearly out of that hole. I want to say, but just from the projects he's picking nowadays. But yeah, tons of actors have, have gone through this chain. And doing this research, I was looking at Famke Jansen, famous Bond girl, famous X-Men star, Jean Grey. She took up you know, the video market, which, by the way, if Jean-Claude's the king, Bruce Willis is definitely the godfather. Artistic integrity, okay? Audiences want to know it's you, Bruce. They expect it. And we're talking about a lot of money here. I know. What are you talking about? They're not going to recognize me, Ben? Oh, where'd Bruce go? Huh? Can't see Bruce no more. Oh, well, where's my favorite movie star? Oh, look, there he is. I see him right there, the guy with the beard. He set up shop in this fucking market. I just wonder what their motivation is, you know? Because I don't see Bruce Willis, like, truly enjoying the art form of acting. But it seems like a market to where somebody who had enough money could do that, you know, and they could even hire Nick Cage. <laughs> right. Nick Cage doesn't, doesn't care where the money's coming from. And speaking of Nick Cage, uh, we talked about the actors and their director videos. I wanted to try and see if we could pinpoint exactly where it went down because some people will argue that The Wicker Man <laughs> was the first of his downslope. Well, what is that? What is that? What is that? Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! I'm my eyes! My eyes! Ah! Ah! But if we're talking direct-to-video, I mean, he did a lot of stinkers that still made theaters. Yep. I really enjoyed Lord of War, and that was uh, 2007, if I'm mistaken, or five, somewhere in that range. And then I kind of think that's, to me, where he fell off. I mean, he's I mean, real close to Wicker Man. <laughs> He sneaks National Treasure in it. That's a, that's a fun, good little Disney movie, but... Take a trip with me down this rabbit hole. Yeah. So yeah. he wins the Oscar for leaving Las Vegas, right? Okay, yeah. Let's just start there. Oh, okay. His next three is his action trilogy. Yep. The Rock, Connor, Face Off. Then yep. he, he does City of Angels, famous, you know, romance drama, great soundtrack, put the goo-goo dolls on. Next project was Snake Eyes, De Palma film. He's working with famous directors. Uh, 8mm, uh, same guy who wrote 7, wrote 8mm. It's also a Joel Schumacher film, working with more great talent. Bringing Out the Dead, he works with fucking Martin Scorsese. Uh, Gone in 60 Seconds, you know, it's a money grab, but it's, it's you know, it's a Bruckheimer film. He's secure. Family Man, he legitimizes Brett Ratner. He did Wind Talkers, John Woo. We're going we're gonna to be doing Wind Talkers at some point. And Charlie Kaufman, adaptations right after that. Then he works with Ridley Scott, Matchstick Men. He has his own Disney franchise with National Treasure. Then Lord of War. I mean, I just named off classic after classic after classic. It's because he's a really fucking good actor, man. <laughs> and so with, with this gauge, let's keep going. Okay, so he does Lord of War. 
as you said, was probably the the end of the good. There's some gems thrown in there, but I think that's when it gets really it's it's a downhill slope from 2005. So then after that, he does he does the Weatherman. I don't know if you knew this, but that's a Gore Verbinski film. So the guy who made Pirates of the Caribbean made the Weatherman. So he's still working with popular talent. He does World Trade Center with Oliver Stone, and then we get to Wicker Man, and then after that, it's Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider makes money. Then we get into next. Then the sequel to National Treasure. Then we get to Bangkok Dangerous, Knowing, Bad Lieutenant, Kick-Ass, Sorcerer's Apprentice, Season of the Witch, Drive Angry, Seeking Justice, Trespass, Ghost Rider sequel, Stolen, Frozen Ground. And it just kind of really snowballs for sure. Like he had a lot of clout for a lot of years. It's amazing his run. It's just like I, I wonder if even he wanted to keep on acting like that. You know, yeah. or if he was just like, I just want to just act, <laughs> you know, just just walk in in costume, do my thing and then just go back to doing what I want to do. He just tries to make it the best he can and has fun with it. So, you know, and, and that's the difference that I see with Nick Cage's films as opposed to Willis's films. Right. Yeah. Bruce Willis just looks like he does not want to be there. <laughs> like at least Cage is putting a little bit of panache on it. At least mm-hmm. Cage is really trying to take hold of it and really trying to add some kind of of artistry and and prove that he's worth being hired for what he got hired for you know but uh if you know more about it guys sound off in the comments if you are like a direct-to-video fan what are some of the good ones what are some of the bad ones let us know in the comments guys nicholas cage good or bad a challenge certainly but not insolvable because all actors have distinct values which i use to find answers I watched enough to find the answers because this, this is my reality. This is how I learned to be. And my being doesn't allow for Nicholas freaking Cage, okay? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. But after that, we got a game to play. Rylan, you ready to play a game? Let's play, baby. So we're bringing back the top three, uh, but we wanted to put a little Nick Cage spin on it. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're going to do our top three Nick Cage co-stars. What we mean by this is whether it be a good actor or a bad actor or whatever, he's not a big monologist. Yeah. You know, he's usually in the moment with somebody. And if you can catch lightning in a bottle, you could live in infamy. Um, especially on this top three with us here at Spit in the Real Shit. We wanted to highlight some of the best co-star that Cage has had in his career. Rylan? All right, so my number three, I had to go with The Rock, man. Sean Connery. One act tore up your pardon, John. <laughs> of course. I knew he would. The SDUs and the scuba gear should still be where we came ashore. If you can get to the Pan Pacific Hotel, there's clothes in my closet. $200 in the Bible, room 26. Well, it's been a long time since I've said thank you to anybody. Sean Connery was back, you know, he was so good. Their relationship was hilarious. They had some comedy moments in there that I really, really enjoyed. It's just a fucking badass movie on top of that, you know. It's got our boy Ed Harris in there. I love that Ed Harris is so welcome. If we Uh, ever get the chance to interview Ed Harris. I'd geek out so bad. The Abyss is one of my favorites. Uh, Uh, Fucking milk money, man. Shit is so good. Uh, Uh, um, But no, I think Connery kind of stole the show, which is what I love about it, because... Nick Cage has plenty of freak out, dumb 
moments in that movie. And uh, I think Sean Connery kind of went up some of his character is perfect for him. I think they both had a lot of fun with each other on set and it yeah. shows. Like that was the first time I ever saw this dude and made a connection that I'm going to see this guy again. What about you? What was, what was your first? It was definitely Highlander. I'm surprised we haven't done a Highlander show yet. That's like one of my all time favorites, but um, we'll get there. Um, I mean, I think this was almost one of his last who Raws really is one of his last really great action movies. So yeah, I got, I got to give credit to, to our boy, Sean Connery, rest in peace. Ed, Ed Harris. I mean, he doesn't play a baddie much and he killed it in that role as a bad guy, dude. God, he was so, so good. Stoic as fuck, man. Much love Ed Harris, man. I want to know who I'm talking to. This is Brigadier General Francis X. Hummel, United States Marine Corps from Alcatraz. Out. Okay, so with my number three, I went with my boy, Sam Rockwell. Huge fan of Sam Rockwell. Oh, yeah. Uh, he did a movie called Matchstick Men with Nick Cage, mm-hmm. directed by Ridley Scott, where there are a couple of, like, grifters. And I thought that as good as Nick Cage was in that movie, it was kind of Sam Rockwell sort of giving a Nick Cage impression. You looking for something, sucker? Yeah. My partner, have you seen him? He's been missing most of the week. Tall, good-looking guy. Hey, would you watch the rug? You're spilling food in... What? You didn't take your shoes off. Okay, okay, I'm taking the shoes off. Okay, buddy. I'm taking them off. See, they're off. The shoes are off, okay? There you go. Oh, man, you are bad. You shake your pills? I spilled the drain by accident. Oh, Roy, come on, man. Did you call me a Cuso? Moved. You gotta be shitting me. That's what I said. And I think Sam Rockwell does an amazing job in it. If you haven't seen Matchstick Men, I'm not the biggest Ridley Scott fan, but right. I still really enjoy Matchstick Men. But yeah, that's that's my number three. I've seen it. It's been so long, but I remember it being just really, really funny and well-written. And I love Sam Rockwell as well. I think he's just such a good actor, dude. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of his. I think one of my favorite roles of his is in uh, The uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> Never actually seen that film. Oh, really? You need to watch it. It's great. I always thought I was going to be out of my depth just watching it at all because it was such a cult book. I was, I was like, there's no way I can't even touch that thing. I, I, there's, I wouldn't even know what I'm looking at. All right. So my number two, I've got to go with my girl, my my all time favorite crush, Elizabeth Shue and leaving Las Vegas. What's up? It's illegal to drink and drive. That's pretty funny. I wonder if you'll take two hundred and fifty dollars uh, to fuck me. That is, uh, if you'll come to my room for one hour, I will give you $500. You're pretty drunk. Not really. My room's not far. It's uh, the whole year in. You can drive with me uh, if you want, or or we can walk. Or I can give you money for cab fare. In the car. Julie, whatever you want. Why don't you give me the money in the car? I mean, obviously, it's his Oscar award-winning movie, but it's just so damn good, man. I love that damn movie. I think it's it's probably definitely in my top three of his. And Elizabeth Shue's amazing in it, and the story's just, it's just so good. Yeah, I know you've seen it. It's such a deep, depressing kind of story and realistic as hell to me. Two great performances. I mean, Nick Cage wins his award, right. but man, I mean, Elizabeth Shue got nominated, and shit, she was so good in that, so have to give her props she was always used to doing her little you know cute girlfriend roles and this was a super dramatic role and she killed it i was so happy to see her at least get nominated for it because she was so good at it the year that nick cage won for living las vegas was my first psycho year of movie fandom i had seen a few movies but for the for some reason this year i just decided to just go all in on movies 
And I figured one of the first steps was to, you know, follow the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And so I remember every bit of that. And I remember seeing the award buzz. You know, it was different back then. Like, it would just be, yeah. like, headlines or advertisements in a paper just just really just sucking this movie's dick. That's all you would see is just great comment after great comment, like quotes from very respected critics. And that's what got me excited about watching other movies. Like, you could pinpoint where the good shit is because of the people that talked about these movies, like Roger Ebert or, you know, the guy from Rolling Stone or the guy from New York Times. You know, these are legitimate movie critics. That's a definite memory I had, especially with Leaving Las Vegas, that not only did it have Nick Cage, which I already loved, but it also had Elizabeth Shue, which was, I mean, come on, that's Adventures of Babysitting. I mean, she's beautiful. (laughs) Right. And then to hear that that movie stars them, and on top of that, it's really good. Like, I just wanted to see it as just a budding movie fan. just sounded so interesting to me. And then to see, you know, all the indie aspects that it had, I didn't really appreciate it the first time I watched it because it was so real and it was so adult yeah. and it, I was just a child. And then going back and watching it again and seeing that nuance and, and realizing that the reality of it is what makes it so great. It just lives in infamy now. It's a great right. pairing. It, it, I don't think you could do it again. I agree with you where it's, I caught it a little bit later. I didn't catch it in 95, uh, but it's just such a good one. So it's got my number two spot solid. And it's funny that you had a female in your number two, because I have a female in my number two, which is Holly Hunter in uh, Raising Arizona. Which one you get? I don't know. Nathan Jr., I think. Give me here. Here's the instructions. Oh, he's beautiful. Yeah, he's awful damn good. I think I got the best one. I bet they were all beautiful. All babies are beautiful. This one's awful damn good, though. Don't you cuss around him. He's fine, he is. I think it's Nathan Jr. We are doing the right thing, aren't we, Hi? I mean, they had more than they could handle. Well, now, honey, we've been over this and over this, and there's what's right and there's what's right, and never the twain shall meet. But don't you think his mama will be upset? I mean, overly? Well, of course she'll be upset, sugar, but she'll get over it. Great yin to Cage's yang, if you will, to where they couldn't be more opposite of a couple. You know, in that sense. But but for some reason, you just root for them in this movie. Chips are just stacked against them so hard. And they just make the best of it. They want to be actual parents. All their intentions are very heartfelt. You can see it in both the performances. And even with all the negativity coming at them with the, you know, the jailbird friends and, you know, the, the bounty hunter and all that kind of stuff. They still just maintain just this this real couple kind of dynamic and i love it i love it so much well i can just continue in and saying that's my number one my number one's holly hunter i'll just roll with it um yeah 1987 i didn't see it till way later it's a coen brothers film it's so fucking quirky and the soundtrack's hilarious some of the best comedy out of nick cage i think and holly hunter's just amazing and this is future oscar winner holly hunter so she's so cute and young in this one too this is 1987 so i don't know why but that movie the soundtrack sticks with me uh, Tex Cobb, that bounty hunter guy, was like so scary to me as a kid. Anytime he was in Absolutely. a movie, I was like, oh, that guy eats people. <laughs> One of the most menacing guys ever in Hollywood. That night I had a dream. I drifted off thinking about happiness, birth, and new life. But now I was haunted by a vision of. He was horrible. A lone biker of the apocalypse. A man with all the powers of hell at his command. 
could turn the day into night and laid to waste everything in his path. He was especially hard on the little things, the helpless and the gentle creatures. He left a scorched earth in his wake, befouling even the sweet desert breeze that whipped across his brow. I didn't know where he came from or why. I know if he was dream or vision, but I feared that I myself had unleashed him. For he was the fury that would be as soon as Florence, Arizona found her little Nathan gone. That's so funny you bring up Tex Cobb. Um, this is something that not a whole lot of people know, but enough people know to where it's a thing. But I've never told you before. There's this uh, script that I wrote. I wrote like part of a movie. It's totally off the dome. It's a story that came to me years ago and I finally put it to paper. And it's called The Diary of Rick Stevens. Yeah. That's the name of the movie. The main character, Rick Stevens. I always imagined him to just be like the ultimate badass. Like the ultimate, <laughs> ultimate, just nobody fucks with this guy type of Rick Stevens right. guy. And um, in, in my mind, whenever I was writing it, I would always think of Tex Cobb in Raising Arizona. <laughs> like I just thought he was just the most rugged, like the most badass, the most I don't give a fuck. Like that kind of character just, you know, there's nothing behind those eyes type of thing. If you ever wanted me to send you that script, I would I would totally send it to you. I oh, have hell yeah, dude. I, oh, I'd love it. Hell yeah. It's just this running joke me and my friends have. It started like there was this girl that dumped me. You know, I was pretty upset about it. And I find out that she started hooking up with this other dude. And this dude's name was Richie Stevens. <laughs> and I was like, man, she dumped me for a guy named Richie? Yeah. <laughs> like, man, that's a real kick in the dick, you know? That's hilarious. Like, this guy had had his pick of any kind of cool name. Mm-hmm. Like you could have been Richard. You could have been you know, Ricky. You could have been Rick. And I was like, oh, Rick Stevens, that's a fucking cool ass name. And so they, me, me and my buddies just started building up this guy as like, just the, just the guy who just, he like sleeps on cinder blocks just to like, you know, callous up his skin. Like there's no question this guy could whoop your motherfucking ass. <laughs> <laughs> You made your own threat level midnight, dude. Absolutely, dude. Do we all have our copy of Threat Level Midnight by Michael Scott? Yeah. All right. Let's get this started. I'm going to be reading the action descriptions. And Phyllis, I would like you to play Captain Zeta Jones. Um, But anyway, so, so getting to my number one, I chose kind of a newer Nick Cage film, if you can believe that. But I think that Nick Cage in Kick Ass with his daughter in the movie, Chloe Grace Moretz, was one of the best on-screen duos I'd seen from Nick Cage in forever. And I'm talking about these are great duos that I'm I'm passing up. You know, you got John Travolta and Face Off. You got fucking Guarding Tess with Shirley MacLaine. I mean, these are great one-on-ones with Nick Cage. But I think that Chloe Grace Moretz really brought out that piece of Nick Cage that I think was dying at that time. Let's call it insurance. Makes it easier for us to take your word. See, we like you, but we don't trust you. 
Don't take it personal, though. We don't trust anybody. I rerouted your IP address. Finding you was way too easy. And I think he fed off that. It made his performance better. It made the movie better. It made the movie memorable to a point where it becomes kind of a classic. I think that those two really catapult that into classic status as one of those modern classics. His character is Big Daddy, right, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, yes. If you're a comic book fan, I mean, Kick-Ass is just a great spinoff of, a, of that genre that it wasn't a squeaky clean fucking Marvel movie or, or DC movie. It was, it was kind of edgy and fun and goofy as hell at times, and the comedy was there. But his relationship with his daughter was what kind of made it a pretty damn good movie. You know, there was some depth to it. There was some character development. But it's still a pretty fun movie and, and out there movie. Am I mistaken that Big Daddy dies in the first one or does he die in the second one? Oh, sorry. Spoiler, guys. <laughs> uh, Big Daddy passes in the first kick ass. That's right. That's right. Because um, I, I remember watching the second, and the second just didn't have that. And it might have been because it was Nick Cageless. Uh, but uh, I think it just didn't have the same maybe. hit that the first one had. So, and, and maybe we'll do another chapter of top three Nick Cage co stars. You know, because there's so yeah. many out there to choose from. Yeah. Just call it another top three. Well, you never know. We might have another Nick Cage movie that has a, another Oscar winner performance in it. So. <laughs> Uh, so that wraps up our game. And thank you, Rylan. You know, we, we know we yeah. love a good top around here. Thank you. You are entirely welcome. But now, let us all go to my house for a little sponge cake or a little wine. And oh, shit! To the lumberyard! So last thing we got to do is we got to do this double feature, Rylan. We did a double feature of Nick Cage with a pair of 2021 releases, Pig and Prisoners of the Ghost Land. Which movie did you watch first? I watched them in release date order, which was Pig first. And then I watched Prisoners of Ghost Land after that. And what I thought was funny was... In 2021, he made three movies, Prisoners of Ghostland first. Then he came up with Willy's Wonderland, which we've done. on the, I think that was the first episode, if I'm not mistaken. And then he finished right. it with Pig. So at least he finished the, the year strong. <laughs> that is a weird year for, for him because those first two are in very similar kind of – to me, they're pretty similar in ways, but very different as, as well. I think he just literally says yes to anything that comes his way because that shows it right here <laughs> in this year. So. So what do you want to talk about first? Let's get into Pig. I think I think that's going to be our most exciting thing. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. 2021's Pig. For a truffle pig. Someone's star. I don't understand. Tell me you are. You made the right choice being out there in the woods. 
there's nothing here for you anymore. There's really nothing here for most of us. Buy yourself a new pig. What are you thinking? I remember every meal I ever cooked. I remember every person I ever served. You live your life for them, and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. Where's my pig? <laughs> I noticed when you hit play on the movie, the production company is Neon. If, if you follow the Oscars, they're the ones that produced Parasite. They have a best picture under their wow. belt. So automatically I'm like, okay, this could be a good movie. The movie itself is made by Michael Sarnowski. It's his debut. It's his, his directorial debut for a movie. He's done um, some TV stuff, I think. Directorial debut for a for a feature film and knocks it out of the damn park, in my opinion. If this production company's picked uh, Parasite's directors and then this guy, they've got really good eyes and good taste. So that's exciting for the production company. I'm interested to know what his story is because before we get into Pig, I mean, you have to know it plays kind of like a redemption thriller almost mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but i mean as as much as i saw that in the movie what i really saw was all the nuance was all the metaphor that they were trying to hit on in the movie and i, and I think that's what makes this movie so good in my opinion i can't wait to see what his next project is if it kind of stays in that culinary way or if that's his background or you know i i'm just curious because this movie floored the hell out of me. I thought it was really, really yep. good. His cinematography and his camera angles and some of his shots in this film are, are spectacular for a first-time director. I was kind of blown away, to be honest. And I, I liked that I held off to watch this. I heard really good things, and it made me excited. Just based on the premise, though, because I'd watched the little teaser trailer. You know, it, it wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting a John Wick style of film, a revenge film. And it yeah. is definitely not that. It is not that at all. And I love that. I think it's just, yes, there's so many similarities to it. You know, a guy's a loner or he's lost someone and and he's attached himself to an animal. He gets, you know, somebody breaks in, takes his animal and he has to go find out what's going on. But then that's where this movie takes a totally different turn. And I wasn't expecting that. And, and I fucking loved it, man. So let's get into it. So it opens up on a day in the life of this man. Uh, we find out later his name is Robin Feld. And it's basically how Robin is spending his days. Very simple, just life out in the woods with his pig. If you know anything about truffles, uh, which is kind of the main subject of this film, you know, the truffle pig is invaluable. They're just known for finding these truffles. Apparently this pig is really good at it. He finds some of the best ones. Nick Cage himself is quite the cook. It's just been very simple the first 15 minutes. And then the next thing that kind of happens is this Corvette shows up or Camaro or, or whatever it is. It's a very flashy car. And out walks just this kind of city guy, if you will. 
and he's played by Alex Wolf, who's famous for Hereditary, uh, Jumanji. I think Alex Wolf is a spectacular actor. I like him a lot, and and I think he did just as well in this role as he did in those other two. So like, I think he's kind of a hot new actor. That Alex Wolf, he's so hot right now. <laughs> as a movie fan, he's just one to watch, you know, and he does he's a great a- job in the film. He's a bit of a chameleon. I mean, when you first see him in, in, in this movie, he kind of plays the slick back, young, douchey city guy really, really well. He can kind of put himself in, in different characters really well. That's what I like about him. He's like oh, a yeah. Judge Reinhold. You know, he's like a new Judge Reinhold. <laughs> <laughs> he likes music. And you know what? Maybe one day he'll be a big star. And you ask him to come back here and give out prizes and stuff. And maybe he just won't because the way you dumped on him. He embodies these characters, for real. You know, if, if that's the character you want him to play, like, he plays it to perfection. I think he did it in this film. He's very fast-talking. He's very all-business. He is the guy that buys truffles from Nick Cage's character. And that's how Nick Cage, or Robin, makes his money. Beautiful. <sighs> Woo. I know this little fucker does it. How you do it? <laughs> you sure you don't want one of those um, camp showers? You know, the ones with the propane and the hot water? What about that phone? I don't want to be the one to drive up and find you, like, dead. He grabs the truffles. He, he drops off the supplies that Nick Cage needs, and, you know, he leaves. Later on that night, disaster strikes because people break into his house and they steal his truffle pig in very violent fashion. And Nick Cage is obviously trying to, you know, stop them from doing it. The, the intruders, they strung on him, and they're able to get away with his pig. And it's just sad. And like you said it, Ryland, like, has very John Wick type of vibes to it. Yeah, I just, I really enjoyed that first 15 minutes because there's a lot of foreshadowing in this movie. There's a lot of things you have to pick up on. It's it's a kind of a slow start, slow burn. But you see in that first five minutes that the way he cooks, you know he's super skilled. I mean, I like to cook and I, I can't do the stuff he's doing, you know. So mm-hmm. he's kind of living my dream life, man. He's a hermit up in the Oregon woodlands with a pig as a pet that, you know, makes him enough money to survive. So and then it gets even more up my alley because I love the scene where, you know, he wakes up and he realizes his pig's gone and... And he's gotten his ass beat and he just, you know, he charges his, his old rusty truck up and takes the, the tarp off of it and puts gas in it and revs that fucker up. He's trying to get intel about obviously where his pig's at. And he goes to the other truffle farmers yeah. and, and gets some intel from some shady characters. He's so quiet and stern and just to the point, where's my pig? You know, and I love that where he's, his character really develops throughout the film. In the beginning, he's very stoic and, and doesn't talk much, but then... Like I said, you really have to pay attention to this one because there's not a lot of exposition at all. Those two guys that give him a little bit of intel to to figure out that he needs to go back into town. He eventually enlists the help of his buyer, Amir, talks Amir into taking him into town, which is Portland, Oregon. That's another facet of it, like why troubles are so needed, because it is a very progressive city. You know, it's one of those where, you know, people will spend money on extravagant type of food up there if it holds some kind of rare importance you know people will just throw money at it it's a very lucrative business in that area he's been there before he used to live in the city and something happened to drive him out and to put him on the path he's been on for the last about 15 years a very important part starts in this which is the dynamic between amir and robin it's a dynamic that plays throughout the entire film i'm not sure if you even caught this rylan but i caught it like immediately right off the bat 
in the storytelling of this movie, it's a lot of representation happening, mm -hmm. you know, especially in broad strokes as referring to restaurants. So if, if you were to say that Robin represented like the back of the house, yeah, like yep. Amir completely represented the front of the house. Oh, yeah. And what they put importance on versus what the back of the house puts importance on. It's a dynamic that seems kind of odd. But if you work in restaurants, it's it's very cohesive. I love that that is kind of a representation of the, you know, the the duality of this whole industry. It's like at the end of the day, like it's nasty. It's muddy. It's full of pigs that dig up truffles. I mean, that's the dirty part of this business. But then there's the other part where it's just squeaky clean and, you know, full of importance and pomp and circumstance, you know, that wouldn't exist without the other part. It dug deep with me because, I mean, that's what I've done my whole life. And you're totally right. There's there's a lot like I'm pretty sure Michael Sarnowski has come out of the, the SI industry somehow, some way to, to write a film that that is this deep of a representation of of an entire industry which is huge not a lot of people understand man i don't know the numbers but there's millions of us guys that are in retail service industry customer service type of thing the food industry in particular to me it's a different animal man i mean it is it's you're feeding people people treat food a lot differently than than almost anything in the world it can be romantic it can be sexy it can be just something that brings people together it's celebratory it's it's a part of our life so I can definitely tell the director has has a, has a history. And this is like the high-end stuff. I mean, this isn't Chili's we're talking about here. I mean, this is like the level yeah, of, yeah. of culinary design, you know, that people spend years in school doing for the whole representation of Nick Cage's character to just be that dirty, rugged thing that you need to have in this industry. And that thing is just staring you right in the face mm -hmm. with its brutal honesty. And then you stand there with your fresh starched white linen, just being fake as fuck. And this real ass fool who loves the same thing you love. It's just that realness coming at you, really yeah. poking holes and all of that prestige. It's a great way of looking at it, you know. For every pretentious person out there who loves eating at restaurants, there has to be somebody else that has to get dirty in order to do yeah. it. They just want it to go away. And they think that they can because of the situation that they're in. But they can't because the guy gained clout in ways that other people couldn't, which is a great segue to the next scene, which is where he has to go find Edgar. For Edgar to look up to somebody, that's big. You're talking about this scene with Edgar. That's kind of where I got a little worried. It's an underground fighting ring, almost a fight club for service industry workers, but they just stand there and get their ass kicked for, for a minute. I mean, this movie, like I said, is so real realistic to me. To me, it's a little bit of a subplot that I don't think was necessary. I got to be honest, whenever I saw, started seeing it, too, I was definitely confused. This is just him trying to remind people exactly right. how much of a legend he really is. And you can't just do that by going straight to the top. Like, you have to earn the respect of the back of the house. It's easy for him to do that, where Amir has no way of doing that. There's right. no way he can just walk into that room and yep. prove himself, you know? Yeah, he just stands there. He just lets him get just whooped, beaten to a pulp, and he just gets up. Like, where's my pig? Uh, yeah. And he just builds that lore that just like, holy shit, you know, he's a fucking badass. After he does that, he, he gains a lot of respect from Amir. Now he's understanding that this guy is a really a revered person. And so the next morning he wakes up at Amir's house. Amir makes him some breakfast and, and he talks about what the next steps are, like how he's going to get more info. That's where Amir really opens up to Robin about his life and his father and his mother and what he's going through. 
they're all going through like super loss or sorrow or, or something really bad. You know, when I was a kid, my parents used to do this date night thing. I mean, not a lot. My dad was really busy. They'd usually come back fighting and screaming at each other and my mom will get all mopey. But this one night, I remember going to this restaurant and they came back and they were so happy. Like they were smiling and talking about the food and the wine and really, really, really drunk. They talked about that meal for years. It's sought so well in that, that squeaky clean apartment that Amir lives in. You understand that he is kind of linked up with a more famous father in the tragedy befell the mother. And he, and he feels like he can get more info if he uh, gets a lunch reservation at this place. Eurydice. Like when he asked this favor of Amir, Amir's like, yeah, sure I can. In the next scene, you realize how hard it is for Amir to really network with the back of the house, you know, which is another unspoken, you know, restaurant thing. You know, there's some people that are, it's just easier to get along with the back of the house and there's some people that just don't. It's, it's a whole thing. It takes some doing for Amir, but he finally gets the reservation. They start the lunch and then you get to see like the whole other side of this truffle thing, this meal that you have that you get to see in full presentation. And then also I love just the Nick Cage, just dirty, just blood on his face. And just these places where traditionally he wouldn't be in. He is covered in blood. It's not like he has a couple of bandages on his face. He has not cleaned himself at all. Like a bum that, that slept in a dumpster. And he's in this pristine restaurant. And it, as a viewer, you're like, people would be staring and it would be a scene. This server, which triggered the hell out of me. The way that this server presents this food and all the stupid, you know, adjectives of this moss was grown in salt water off the bay of, you know, Seattle. And it was just that ridiculous high end of culinary that to me is, it's cool. It's a unique experience, but it's just, it's so pretentious to me. It just comes off so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. There's guys that buy million dollar watches. There's people that have, you know, these yachts that are worth a billion dollars. But food only gets to this, like, it's as high as you can make it, you know, with food. But it seems just as absurd to me as a billion dollar yacht. So, oh, people really do go and do that and enjoy that, you know. You know, it's so extravagant. It, it bothers me. <laughs> and to form Cage's character, he disturbs complacency even more by just grabbing a truffle, like, off the plate with his bare hands. And just eating it, you know, just off the plate and wanting to complain. You know, he wants to see the head chef. I think this is one of the landmark scenes in this film. Oh, is, by far. Is when the head chef comes by and, and then Nick Cage just completely breaks this guy down. But not like physically, but just gradually. Just why are you even doing this job? Like a person at your level should have so much passion. Where's your passion? Just the way Nick Cage looks, it just it just adds to that aesthetic of just this this thing glaring you in the face this this is raw real passion in my eyes for for cooking and proper ingredients to where you know he's just a blubbering mess because he makes him realize that he didn't chase his dream it's a level of success that can't be measured with dollars and he didn't achieve it and he's realizing that this scene is the bread and butter of this movie 
I mean, th- I mean, this conversation with Chef Derek, who this chef who now is running this eclectic state of the art or, or exciting and groundbreaking kind of culinary shit. He breaks them down so gradually. This man this this chef who's so proper in the beginning, just turns into a bubbling mess and and realizes, you know, you're right. He, he skips his entire dream of opening up an English pub because no one wants a pub in this neighborhood. And such a deep scene because he's so raw and he's sitting there and he looks like absolute shit. He's covered in blood. I mean, his main goal of the conversation is to, to do that so he can get more answers out of it. You like cooking it? Absolutely. Derek, what was it you always used to talk about opening? Wasn't it a pub? Everyone loves it here. It's, this is a huge success. Why didn't you open your pub? I, I that I really wanted. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just such a long time ago. When I fired you, I asked you what you wanted to do. You said you have a few rooms upstairs. A real English pub. Did, did I say that? Yes. Nobody wants pubs around here. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a terrible investment. What was going to be your signature dish? Liver scotch eggs with a honey curry mustard. <laughs> They're not real. You get that, right? None of it is real. The critics aren't real. The customers aren't real. Because this isn't real. I wrote a quote, but that one scene, this one quote really hit. And it's like, why care about these people? They don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. You're pouring your, your whole life into these people that you don't, they don't even see you. You're in the back. That's what made this movie for me. There was that scene alone. With him breaking him down, he does. He gets some info, but it's not the info he really thought he was going to get, which he finds out that the culprit is the father of Amir. So it creates a trust issue with Robin and, and Amir. And so Robin gets really upset. He basically breaks off their agreement, you know, for the, for the truffle barter. And he just decides he's going to go meet up with Amir's father, Darius, at his house. And he does. And it's a great scene. It, it's, it's very reminiscent of, like, you know, the two giants of good and evil meeting. And that he's willing to offer to buy him out just for him to just be quiet and go back home. And he's offering, like, big money. And he's doing that thing where, you know, he's, he's reinforcing the pretentiousness the importance of these things. But Nick Cage's character, he's just a brick wall. You made the right choice being out there in the woods. You had your moment, but there's nothing here for you anymore. There's really nothing here for most of us. You don't keep a grip on it. That's pretty much it. Like He understands what the root of this business is and it's passion and he exudes it and he sees this man across from him who's very monetarily successful but who has no passion whatsoever where he's just this monster of a person who doesn't care he just he's out for the best truffles who gets the best truffles the best truffle pig let's steal that pig you know and it's heartless and it's ruthless but it's but it's a part of the business whatever false empty hollow thing that you think is so important but really it's about the food he comes off as this kind of tough gangster guy almost you do kind of figure out that amir's mom slash his wife you know they've kind of lost through 
a sickness, pretty much brain dead. Mm-hmm. You know, all these main characters are going through this loss and something's fucked up about them. That's kind of the main focal point is these three characters and their similarities, in my opinion. After the offer, Nick Cage's character declines the the money offer. But Darius just keeps on pushing the fact that that he won, you lost, it's time to go home. Uh, after he leaves that confrontation, he takes another passive route where instead of wanting to fight his way through, he decides he's going to cook a meal for Darius. And he needs these these certain ingredients. It's sort of a montage, him having to reach out to old connections to get these ingredients. They prepare the meal, and they invite him down, which another fantastic scene where everybody knows what's going on, and they know what he's doing. Like, he's serving the same meal that they had that they talked about in his apartment. You see it coming a mile away, but what you don't expect is the reaction from Darius. It floods back all of those memories, like, and, and just reinforcement of how, how special food is in that way. Get out. Please get out. Get out! Get out of my house! Get out! I remember every meal I ever cooked. I remember every person I ever served. It's a great love letter slash criticism of the whole industry. And I think it's just genius. I love I love this fucking movie. He takes a few bites, he sips a couple of sips of wine. And he just breaks down. Can't help but just break down and cry and think about that very same meal he had with his desolate wife who's on life support. And it breaks him down so hard the same way it broke down Chef Derek. But, you know, Darius is a little bit harder of a character. So he had to bring out the big guns. He had to serve him a meal. And he, he tells him that, yes, he was the one who took the pig, but he hired a couple of guys to do it. When they did it, they did such a hack job on bringing the pig back that by the time the pig got back to, you know, Darius's house, he was in such bad shape and badly wounded that they had to put it down. Such a loss. The second Nicolas Cage realizes his pig is dead, I mean, that's some of the best acting in the movie. I mean, he's so good at portraying that emotion of, of just being so defeated and sad about it. That man loved his damn pig, you know? Like, it was never about the truffle. It, he had bonded with this thing. And The following scene is, you know, you see, you see Amir and Robin at a, at a diner, really just kind of reflecting on what they just experienced. You know, it just sucks. He didn't ask for any of this, but it just kind of got heaped on him. They split ways, but they decide to keep doing business with each other. After they split ways, you see Amir get into his car, and he just completely breaks down. He doesn't know what to do. The guy lost his pig, one of the most important things in his life. I don't think he had any intention of, of that happening to the man. And his guilt really caught up to him because he didn't mm-hmm. realize really how impactful it all was. And he realizes how much he destroyed a guy, really fucked him up. So the last five minutes of the film, it's Nick Cage's character just kind of walking towards his house. He finds a cassette tape that has his old wife, which we didn't hit on that either, that passed away. And that's where Amir got the wine pairing was from that mausoleum. He pops that tape in, his lost love, and then it just kind of plays out with her playing guitar, him finally taking off his boots and calling it a night. And then roll credits. I mean, that's the end of the film. You know, looking at it at face value, the movie seems very confusing. It's like, why did he act that way? Why did he subdue 
this thing where it could have been a huge bang. I think it's just a huge metaphor for the culture of, of the culinary industry. Amir is a great example. He knows that his loyalty does not lie with the passion of culinary delight or whatever. It's just business to him. This tragedy just keeps befalling this guy who is 10 times the man in the passion department. Like, how could he ever measure up to this man? This man has taken this huge hit and still standing tall. Man, I, I, I could go on and on about this film. Different things about it that just just harken back to just that culture of just putting importance on things where if you really take a step back, it's not that important. So, you know, like like somebody willing to go steal a pig in the name of truffles, you know, it's, and, and the sacrifices people have to make at the expense of others in order to achieve these things. You know, I think that's what Sarnowski was really trying to say. He was trying to show the underbelly of the industry. That's what it takes. It takes dirt. It takes nastiness. I think he wants people to see that. This is written and directed by one guy, and I think he just killed it. I mean, uh, it's so deep and, and mysterious and suspenseful, but it's so well shot, too. So this guy's got it all. Super excited for to see what this guy does next. You know what? This this capped off uh, uh, you know the year for Nicolas Cage, and, and I'm glad he ended on a good note. So we got to give it a ranking, man. For these episodes, we have a different ranking system. We usually do stars, but when it comes to stepping into the cage, we give one out of five Nicolas Cage's. And so with this movie, with everything that it offers, the nuance that it has, the performances involved, you know, the production design, cinematography, all of that, it's got to be a good four and a half Nicolas Cage. That's how I praise! Like, easy. It's one of his better entries in the last decade. I think that not a whole lot of people could have pulled that off, that performance. It's not impossible, but I think he really gives it life. Uh, yeah, four and a half Nick Cages. What about you, Ryland? How would you rate this film? I'm right there with you. I'm going to give it a 4.3. That's how I praise. Like I said, I was happy that it wasn't a revenge movie. It's so deep. And if you've ever worked in a restaurant, it hits on different levels. That'll probably people that have never worked in a restaurant hit. So I can't wait to see what he does next, man. Right. But we still have one more movie we got to talk about. That's not near as loved by the critics. <laughs> um, but one that I did find curiously intriguing. And that is 2021's Prisoners of the Ghost Land. My granddaughter has been lost to us. I would have her return to me post-haste. And you, sir, I am told, are the man to do the job. Each arm is equipped with an explosive device. Your trousers are also equipped with explosives. Really? Just beyond the point where we now stand lies a highway where evil reigns. What is this? At the end of five days, if you have not returned with Benice, well, I think you get the idea, son. Godspeed. This is the ghost land. A land of no escape. We are not the ones who hold her captive. It's been two days, and still she is missing. How do I get out of here? You must surrender to fate.
No one escapes the ghost land. No one! It's definitely late cage, definitely lazy cage as well, but not really. You, you know what the movie really gave off? It gave off the vibes of like a really good sequel to yeah. a movie that doesn't exist. Like they just started the story on the sequel and there's like supposed to be this whole other movie that we haven't seen yet. That's what it kind of felt like, like, like everything was already in motion to where it shouldn't have been an origin film. It should have been the sequel. It definitely has measures of those direct video entries that we were talking about earlier on in the show i mean especially with bill mosley running around it definitely has b movie <laughs> written all over it. but i think he adds something to it you know right. it might not be the best thing but, but i mean he adds something we've talked about angley's hulk on this show we talked about the foreign director and their skewed view of how america works i think this is kind of another example of that to try and emulate america's values but they just can't because they're just of a different origin, you know? So so the first scene in the movie is a flashback scene. Right. And it's of a bank robbery. And it's, I want to say the first few moments of the film, I was like, these are some cool choices they're making with the clothing. Like, it's very mm-hmm. colorful. I thought the color schemes in this film were pretty impressive for, for what we're looking at, you know? The set design and the colors is definitely the shining moment of this film, really. The costumes, the set design, color scheme, cinematography was really, really well done. But it's just, it's all over the place. And Nick Cassavetes, man, uh, all I can think of him in is, is face-off. That's it. Yeah, and so so you find out the Cage and Cassavetes are a part of this heist crew, two of many. And so they're they're trying to rob this bank, and the first scene they've caused some havoc, but right before the scene ends, there's this huge cliffhanger of Nick Cassavetes' character, maybe or maybe not shooting a child, right? Just to do it. So that's hanging in the in the air. We don't know if he did or if he didn't or whatever. So then we're back into real time, which is just a dystopian future where the strong out outweigh the weak. A very Mad Max, if you will. Yeah. I wrote Wild West, weird, apocalyptic, samurai, Japanese, Western. I mean, this director is trying too much, man. There's too many damn genres in this film. <laughs> when it breaks from the flashback, it takes a long time to get to Bernice. Mm-hmm. You know, before before her freak out where she screams, you know, I am not a prisoner. Which, which is a theme throughout the entire film where it's like panning shots of a lot of this production value that they've created. You know, with the desolate scenes and the buildings and the fires going off, you know, the mountains in the background. And I think that they really doubled down on like like the B-roll, you know, like the people yeah. that like the second unit would go out and get the big panoramic shots. That's what I took away from this film was that they're really trying to show you how good the production design is. <laughs> you know, they just throw this very simple hero story in the mix. And so you meet Bernice. She screams out to the heavens. Then it cuts to the jail where you find out Nicolas Cage's character is being held. We're assuming it's because of the bank robbery. And then all of a sudden, Nick Cage gets released from jail, but he's wearing like nothing but like a loincloth. It's, <laughs> it's strange. They take him out of his jail cell. They walk him out of the prison into like the city square, which is packed, by the way, which right. is all these civilians. This limousine pulls up. This man all dressed in white, white cowboy hat played by Bill Mosley. 
the governor. Yeah, he steps out and he kind of lays out all of the exposition for the film, basically, in this scene. He, he says a few words about who Nick Cage's character is. He says, you know, who he is and why he exactly is talking to him in the first place. Is this him? Yes, sir, Governor. Wow, he's a mean-looking cuss, ain't he? They say you're a veritable phantasm, that you have slipped through the firm grasp of the law more than any other man on God's great earth. They also say you're the one who robbed the Bluefin National Bank in P-29, killing, among others, three tellers, two security guards, a retired Navy colonel, his mother, and a small boy whose only crime was masticating a sweet cherry cherry gumball. It's because his step-granddaughter has been brainwashed by these people in this land called the Ghost Land, and that they want Nick Cage's character, who's called Hero, which is, you know... <laughs> I mean, that's another mark on the movie, because, yeah. I mean, his name is Hero. Like, the town in question, it's called Samurai Town. Huge red flags of just bad writing. He just lays out the task at hand for Hero, he, what he needs to do, all the kind of stuff. It's very Escape from New York. Yes. I was going to say it. Ah, you beat me. I was going to say it. he's Snake Plissken in this, man. His, I like how instead of getting injected with a, a virus, he's uh, wearing a bondage suit that has bombs attached to his nuts. <laughs> I thought that it was the most gaudy looking suit. Stupid looking. It has little, little pink bulbs on the explosion areas, potentially. And yeah, it just looks super silly. There's no camera angle that's going to make that suit look good. So the task is at hand. You know, he sends him off. He tries to provide him with a car. But for some reason, Nick Cage, he starts to drive the car, then he stops, gets out, grabs like a local's bicycle, riding off on the bicycle. Nick Cage rides bicycles in both of these movies in, in like awkward, funny ways. In Pig, he steals a bike. When he's done with a mirror, he, he steals a bike and it's like, wait, what? <laughs> what are the odds of that? How strange is that? Yeah. That's why I know we're living in a simulation, bro. This ain't real. I, I wonder if that's Nick Cage's idea. If he was like, <laughs> one thing you got to get before we leave here is a shot of me riding a bike. Check this out. Yeah. <laughs> he, he rides the bike. He eventually gets another set of wheels and he starts riding into ghost land. He's, he's driving this down this dark road that becomes this fiery road that's that's you know blocked by all these demon faces and stuff like that and he starts running right through it the screen goes yep. white and then it picks back up where he's being dragged through this city square through ghost land i'm assuming he's, <laughs> he's through ghost he's, land <laughs> i'm assuming <laughs> uh sorry that was funny that I was mean, unintentionally funny and that's my favorite kind of humor and again, it's another one of those just nonverbal, they're just kind of showing you through montage these different wacky characters that inhabit this place. You know, and yep. Nick Cage is coming too. So it's it's kinda like it's kinda like that scene in Hostel where he's being dragged down the hallway, kind of flashes of different things. One of the more prominent things they show you is like these people that are wrapped in broken pieces of mannequin. It's obvious that there's a person inside, but it's just kind of creepy looking. I thought um, it was great. I thought that was a cool looking uh, idea. That's the, that's the endearing quality of this film is is the set design. I mean, you see this big kind of town square, this big clock tower 
but it's so well done. It's it's massive and it's um pretty practical too. It looks like it is. It doesn't look CGI. I mean, there was obviously some money put into this, uh, and you can tell through, like I said, the set pieces are pretty impressive. So I guess we're we're in Ghostland. I'm assuming is that where we're at? <laughs> Just anytime I get lost, like man, I, I guess we're in Ghostland now. I don't know. Well, I guess I'll be prisoner. So, yeah. <laughs> um, are we prisoners now of the Ghostland? He finally gets to the point where he meets a leader of a community in Ghostland. You kind of find out that they're not all hostiles. They're actually just kind of just people that just want to live and be left alone. And it's a misconception, really, of the amount of danger that they're really in. You know, but Nick Cage's character, he he has a task at hand. You know, he's got to make sure he gets this chick back to back to the governor. You find out that these mannequin characters, they're kind of being brainwashed in in, in a sense. It's kind of like the way that Neo was cleansed. You're going to relate this to the Matrix? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the governor's foster granddaughter or whatever the fuck she is, who's played by Sophia Butella, who's, God, she's hot. She's a great looking girl. <laughs> she's gotten some some decent roles over the years. So I'm really surprised that this movie was able to get Cage and Sophia. I hope I'm saying it right, Butella. But uh, she does the best she can for this role. But this is where you see her in the broken mannequin mask and she can't speak because of this. I mean, is it like a curse or some weird? I don't know. I I, mean, I I was trying my best. I got about an hour in and I was like, just dragging ass because the dialogue, it's God awful. It's almost this like community theater feel where the side characters all chant the same thing. And I hate that. I hate like rhythmic chanting or like where groups of people are almost like a musical where they're all they're all saying the same sure. thing. Like it's just a clusterfuck. Of writing, so I mean, I almost checked out after this whole scene because he's in town and he tries to figure out that this is the girl he needs to take. That's another thing in this movie where I thought the whole movie was going to be like the ending, like 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 he would find her in the third act. Yeah, he found her in the second act, and like it's just immediate, like oh, this is the one I'm looking for. Let's go. Yeah, it's a cool scene where he's kind of chipping away the mannequin pieces, but then he finds the girl. You know, there's some, you know, you can't take her back and forth. He's right. able to get her on that cart that he entered into, and they kind of walk away from this community. It's Bernice and Hero trying to relate to each other and how they can find common ground. But in the beginning, they don't know each other. Also, And also, it's one of my favorite parts of the movie, this scene. It's this is the movie. This is everything. This scene, I, I, I mean... The, <laughs> Uh, I'm happy that I saw this movie only because of this scene and maybe some of the cinematography and the look of it. But yeah, well, you talked about you talked about the the writing, which was god awful. Part of that bad writing was the terrible explanation of the explosives on his suit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, there, there's somewhere you know if if we sense that you're grabbing a young girl, you know, too aggressively, the suit will go off. If you if you do this, the suit will go off. If you do that, the suit will go off. And one of the other caveats was that if he starts to get a boner, yeah, the suit will go off. The bombs are attached to his testicles. And so it's just him and Bernice out there just trying to travel. He's trying to get her to talk to prove that he has the girl, but yeah. she's she's having trouble talking at the time. He's giving yeah. her some water because they're in this desolate land and he's got a canteen and he's and he's filling her mouth up with water and it turns sexual. Really, all he does is just kind of give one of those like, oh, grunts, you know, like, oh, shit, that's kind of hot. And I mean, instantaneously, you see, you hear his suit start beeping, like beep, 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 <laughs> and he freaks out and backs up, and you notice that the beeping is right around his balls and his dick. Fucking just one of his nuts, not both of them, just explodes like out He's of not. nowhere, just blam. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, 
And you get a gotta be top five of all time, Nick Cage overacting slash reaction slash funny ass shit. Like if you're a Nicolas Cage fan, watch this movie and just watch this one scene. <laughs> his reaction to his nutsack getting blown off. And then what's funny is it blows off into his hand. <laughs> so there's this little testicle in his hand. <laughs> Pretty accurate. He makes some really goofy, funny noises because if my nutsack blew off, I I wouldn't just uh, grimace, you know. So it's definitely the best part of this movie. I wrote that in big, big letters. Um his nutsack blows off and he does his freak out while he's holding his nut in his hand. He looks at her and he says, and I don't know what, I don't know why it's, I guess it's Japanese, but he goes, Shiro. Aga. He says, <laughs> Shiro. Aga. And it has no premise reference. You don't know why he says it. You don't know what the fuck it means. And it's just, it just adds oh, to the scene. It's the cherry on top that Nicholas Cage was probably like, how can I say something really cool in Japanese after this? And the director was like, say Shiro Aga. And he's like, Shiro Aga. It's so good. It's so good. Well, okay. So when I start to watch these shitty ones that Nick Cage mm -hmm. does, like we watched yeah. Jiu Jitsu last time. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a 99% chance I'm probably pulling out my phone and looking at something else, just with yeah. the confidence knowing that there's not going to be any kind of huge plot twist that's going to happen. You know, like, like, like the major things are going to happen. I'll be able to catch them, even if I'm on my phone. And I, and I remember we got to that part. The beep went off, and then that fucking bomb went off. And I was like, Holy shit, now we got ourselves a fucking movie. <laughs> it was out of nowhere. You don't expect the hero to get his nutsack blown off a third through the movie. He's got to get this girl to talk into this suit so he she the so the governor knows she's safe. But really, man, after that, it, it's really just scene after scene of of really weird shit. It looks so unpolished. It looks like the movie you would give to the editor. And then the editor would make it better, but they just didn't edit it at all. <laughs> like, let's run with it. No, you're absolutely right. After, after his nut explodes, it goes into some other thing. But I did want to note the part that I laughed at, like like you talked about unintentional comedy. After he blows his nutsack off, he, he has this like existential experience where he realizes who Bernice is and uh, how he relates to his life in general. Such a guy thing. For something to happen to some guy's nutsack, for him to have yeah. some kind of out-of-body experience. Just, just a moment of clarity, you know. Enya's playing somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah. Who can say where the road goes, where the day flows, only time. And who just like, no, no, my, my testicle. I remember stopping it. It's an hour and 40 something minutes. And I stopped it at like 105. And I was like, fuck. Like, it's such an unbalanced movie, which I thought yeah. was the most in interesting thing about it. You get a couple of good stars. The, the set design and the, and the costumes and the, and the cinematography was cool. But then it's just everything else is, is bottom of the barrel. Nick Cage is kind of having fun with the acting, but the acting is god-awful. There's too many genres. I mean, it's Western. There's zombies in the middle of it. No reason to be in this movie. Just start attacking him. It's got the apocalyptic thing. There's samurai swords. You know, it, the substance is just, it's not there. You want to talk more uh, about your boy, Nick Cassavetes? Uh, before we get to that, I was going to mention just all of the Bill Mosley Predator stuff. That takes up a big part of that, too. They really reinforce just how bad the governor is on several scenes where he's just like this child predator 
he ruined Bernice's life. He's on his way to ruin Bernice's sister's life. Yeah, but and, it's repetitive. It's like there's these scenes that don't really connect to each other. That's the one thing I really hate in movies with their pacing and their progression from scene to scene is so random. Have some entry from the last scene into the next. I don't even care what it is, but if when there's none, it just throws me out of the movie and it's really hard for me to pay attention. I mean, a script and a screenplay is huge to me. So Where I gave up was he did have his existential thing and they do the flashback where they show you more of the bank robbery and they finally get to the part with the, you know, the kid with the gumballs in his cup. And you find out that that's not even a big plot point in the movie. Yeah. Like Cage blocks it. They run out of the bank. And then when they're outside of the bank, that's when they meet Bernice and her mother and the tragedy that befalls them. Why didn't you stop the scene when you were outside of the bank? You know, yeah. so it makes more sense. Like it just, it just all these decisions being made, it just doesn't make sense. And Casavetta's man did not age well at all. God, he looks terrible in that fucking scene. Caked on makeup, dude. He's got some eyeliner and shit, but man, that guy just, I know Face Off was almost 30 fucking years ago, but you know, like, <laughs> God, isn't that crazy? Blows my fucking mind. But I will say the Cassavetes where he's kind of like that radio zombie thing. Team. Yeah, I thought he looked really cool. I was like, damn, he looks better as that zombie thing that he does in real life. <laughs> I, I just feel like they just look like they partied together since Face Off. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, they just get together once a week and they're just like, what's up, dude? You ready to like do a bunch of cocaine? <laughs> you know, like, He's in debt because of his cocaine addiction with Nick Cassavetes. <laughs> it's the two Nicks. Like they walk yeah, in the, yeah, the two, yeah, yeah. It's a Nick thing. You, you wouldn't would get it, Charlie. <laughs> and, and, and that's part of it, too, is Cassavetes and these radioactive things. They, they show up for one scene. They don't even really justify why they're there. It's just kind of adding to the lore of this land. Which, again, like I said, it feels like a sequel. It feels like the Cassavetti story was the one they told in the first <laughs> movie. And then whenever this one starts, it opens up on the bank robbery scene. Yeah, yeah. So if you're a person that watched the first one, you're like, oh, shit, it's that guy from the first one. He goes back to the clock tower people, you know, right. and gives this big speech. And that's kind of, that was the quote I said at the beginning of the show, which also made me literally laugh my ass off where he's like i lost my testicle like and then he's like i'm trying to reason with you bitches i'm like whoa where the fuck did that come from like Grosslanders, tomorrow getting out of here impossible it's impossible impossible ha if you had told me three days ago i'd be standing here with one arm and one Testicle! Trying to reason with you, bitches! I would have said impossible too. But I'm telling you, there's a way. There is no way. Yes, there is. The dialogue is, is so weird at times. I think that's what you're getting from a Japanese director. He doesn't understand context of, of English sometimes. That's what you get. And Nick Cage is probably just like, hell yeah, I, I would love to say that line. But also, it's like when we get to that scene where he's trying to rally the troops, there weren't really that many scenes of them being shit on too bad. <laughs> yeah. It just kind of felt like it was like a wait station before they get moving again. But then you realize that, no, they're stuck there. They're stuck in ghost land. And there's no way out. Like the governor has some kind of embargo on it, which we haven't seen yet. We, I mean, we know he's some kind of like child predator, but we don't know like his his reach. And I guess this scene is supposed to build him up as this huge baddie. They have to really prepare, you know, for this battle, which happens. 
and that's where you get the cool scene where at the end, I think that's the first time I've ever seen him in a football helmet, which I was like, cool. <laughs> he has this, you know, end of the movie uh, badass suit thing, and he's wearing a fucking apocalyptic football helmet, and he goes into town. What kind of threw me off, though, was how, how good they did the set design and the cinematography, but the stunts and the action was shit. Oh, yeah. You could tell that there was somewhat of a stunt double in this final scene, but that's why I said it looked almost like community theater earlier with the action. Like, you can tell him and Nick Cassavetes are the ones rolling on the ground and yeah. doing some shit, and it looks so bad because there's no quick cuts. The editing is so fucking god-awful that it looks really shitty. The final scene, you can kind of tell there's a little bit of, of choreography there, but before that, the choreography is nil. It's non-existent, and it shows big time. And there's a lot of action sequences. Samurai <laughs> sword fights, and, and some of those are good. The guy that's doing the samurai sword killing, there's a few cool kills in there. The guy mm. that actually swings a sword around. But he's the one that he kind of fights at the end as the main baddie, the main villain. And it was mediocre at best. I guess that's something we forgot to mention. The main henchman is a guy named Yasujiro. Oh, uh, nice. Who's, who's like the governor's right-hand man. He's like the big swordsmith or whatever. And so, yeah, he's like the guy leading the charge in the big battle. But again, there's nothing super memorable about the battle. No. I remember I whipped my phone out during the battle being like, I don't care about this uh -huh. battle. It's whatever. There's a couple of bright spots. Like you find out that Nick Cage has fashioned his dead arm into a makeshift sword hand almost. Which Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is probably how the director was telling Nick how to do the scene because it's that vague and it's so weird. And yeah, and it just proves the point that if you don't have a good script and a cohesive storyline, people aren't interested. I was doing the same yeah. thing you were. I was kind of like making dinner and checking my pot roast and going, what the fuck is going on now? If yeah. his nuts aren't getting blown off or he's not talking about his nuts getting blown off, I I'm out. So. But what's crazy is that the some of the scenes caught my eye. The color contrast and some of the lighting and then the costumes and the set design was so cool to me. I love that ap apocalyptic look, the Mad Max shit. But it's it's just I hate when I lose interest based on on such a bad written movie. And then on top of that, the, the storyline just didn't mend at all. So And the third act plays out like any generic action movie where big battle, they sift down the forces to where we get to the few under henchman, then the main henchman, then the big baddie. It's in that order, basically. Yeah. And then, of course, they win the day. Bernice and Hero, along with Bernice's sister, they're left to survive. And then you find out that without the presence of the governor and all that, like Samurai Town can finally thrive. <laughs> and, 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 the way you say it, it just makes me laugh because it doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, it's so Look, badly written. You're like Samurai Town. <laughs> like it's it's so stupid. Like it's like, like a six year old wrote it. Like literally, like all right. So this town's full of samurais. What do we call it? Fucking Samurai Town. All right, moving on. Uh, the guy yeah. that kills the kid. He's he's a fucking psycho. Let's just call him psycho. All right, yeah. moving on. We don't got time for this, guys. We we got to build this set, man. It's just red flag city in that department. Like you can't even get the names of things good. <laughs> like, if you can't think of a cool setting or at least a cool character name, like Jack Reacher or some shit, or what? What's your threat level midnight guy's no, name? Uh, Rick. Uh, Rick Stevens. If I had Detective Rick Stevens on my ass, I would be scared. Special Agent Rick Stevens. But hero living. <laughs> in samurai town with bernice they're not good names the governor like uh. and it seems like they had more money than ideas 
And I've got to admit, I mean, there are, there are times where I was watching this movie and there are certain shots where I was really impressed. Like whether it be a landscape or like a scrolling shot, like that shot where, you know, they're moving as a unit through that desolate town to get to the main square where Nick Cage and Sophia are like leading the charge. And then you see all those burnt buildings in the background. Like, and it's a great, incredible shot. It's lost potential, man. Like whoever did the set design and did all the, 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 the costume design and all that, I mean, props, but can you imagine if a decent writer and a screenplay was attached to this? I mean, it, oh. it's right up my wheelhouse. It's apocalyptic, bright colors and, and beautiful cinematography. It's original, yeah. original esque. I mean, of course they take tons of shit from every other apocalypse movie. To me, it's original. I haven't seen these characters. The mannequin thing was cool. You know, the mixture of Japanese Western samurai zombies are thrown in there. There's a horror aspect. There's plenty of gore and blood. So it's got a lot going for it. But I've never seen a movie this lopsided, to be honest, where I was yeah. like, oh, that's really cool. But then the rest is god awful. They just took it out of the oven too early, man. Whatever it is, it's just it's just missing something. Like you fucked yeah. up doing something. Like yeah. we just got to figure out what it is. At the end of the day, we still got to rate this thing, man. So yeah. in true Nick Cage fashion, how many Nick Cages would you give? prisoners i'm gonna give it a 1.3 nick cages because Mm -hmm. some of the stuff was original there was some originality in there i really liked the testicle blowing off scene was worth its weight in gold if you're gonna sit through it just know that there's a scene of nick cage getting his balls blown off you get something there's so you get stuff out of it so hard to sit there and shit on this movie but then again it's not i wouldn't want to watch it again i hope that he at least balances out these movies with the pigs you know if i'll take a prisoners of ghostland if i get a pig followed up or vice versa so nick i hope this paid off your fucking boat slip or something it's it was it was fucking awful and i'm going to give it 1.3 that's all i praise it would be a point three if it was a really shitty uh shittily directed movie i guess i'm a little bit more gracious but not a whole lot uh, i gave it two nick cages that's all i praise in the history of the show you know that i'm a big movie movie guy like like making a movie yeah. for movie's sake and that's what this movie is for better yeah. or for worse it's a guy that wanted to make a movie and he achieved it just the pieces aren't there it has such potential but for what it is, it's just not good. Nick Cage doesn't really do a whole lot to lend too much to the artistry of it. But yes, the star of the show is the back end. It's the production design. It's the costumes. It's the lighting. It's the location shoot. And everything else just, it drags behind so bad to where it's so incredibly obvious and it affects the film in such a bad way to where I just kind of write it off. I'll probably never watch it again. It's obviously two fresh movies. It's most recent. On top of that, they were in part of the same year. So this is a good way of looking at his trajectory, maybe, of where he's going. Man, I'm looking forward to the next one. I wonder what two we're going to pick next. If you have a favorite Nick Cage film, we would love to hear from you in the comments, guys. But yeah, that was our double feature, guys. Really love doing this podcast series. It's so much fun to us. As much as we love shitting on Nick Cage, we find him to be so fascinating. We have mad respect for the man. And we just love being able to poke fun and also go down the rabbit hole with him artistically. He's the most interesting man in Hollywood to me. You know, like he's done it all. There's very few actors that are anywhere near Nick Cage to me. He's so dynamic and cool and fucking I would love to meet the guy in real life. That would be such a fucking cool thing. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to the next one. We got a lot in the hopper, guys. I look forward. We still got that group choice episode to look forward to with October out of the way. I'm excited to see what happens. That wraps up the fourth installment of Stepping Into the Cage and for Rylan Johnson. My name is Charlie Thompson. 
and we have been spitting the real shit. I will see you guys next time. Peace out. I am the architect. Ooh, damn. That's good. You even got the voice down. (laughs) Now you just have to have all that that stupid jargon that nobody understood. (laughs) Well, the storm clouds are blowing in. Days just gone by and I'm feeling worthless. But don't hold it too close. It'll only serve to make you lose your cool boy. Well, the years just go on by. There's no sunken treasure to fill me. So I'll drive all night to nowhere just to chase the sun. I said the battle.